And so a lot of those details are actually drawn from like, oh, I have five weeks with no air conditioning. And my kids were with me and they were really small at the time. And they would like the scene where Mara and Otavi are saying, you know, we're melting, we're melting. That was what my kids did every day. I am Zoe. This is the Book Hose Podcast. Hi, mom. Thank you guys all so much for coming tonight. We are very excited to host Tara and her debut novel, Wild and Distant Seas, which was our Pros and Hoes book club pick. We read it, well, we discussed it last Thursday. Um, we were almost at like full max attendance. Everybody came and was very excited to chat. So thank you for being here with us today. Honestly, this is really, really exciting for us. We're oh, good. Well, thank you for the invitation. Ryan and I were just talking. We were saying like, this was one of our favorite books honestly like we really really loved it <laughs> yeah oh, thank you <laughs> uh, but like selfishly for us we were like oh my gosh we get to doctor <laughs> oh I see and I'm still in this little bit of state of shock where I'm like people I don't know are reading my book <laughs> oh my gosh yeah okay. I can't even imagine that feeling does it is it kind yeah. of like especially I'm sure with working on it like it's your baby for so long and then like yeah imagine that feeling like it's mostly exciting I I was I had a moment like a week before pub day where I went, oh my gosh, I can't change it anymore. <laughs> Even though that was like very clear for a while. But yeah. yeah it's just knowing that it's out there. And like, I didn't realize the amount of like Instagram messages and emails okay. and things that I would get from, you know, friends and people I haven't seen in 20 years and strangers. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, yeah, like realizing that it's not just out there, but people are, you know, not buying it out of politeness and putting it on their bookshelf, but actually <laughs> reading it is, it's a thrill. It's completely surreal, but very exciting. I saw that Barnes and Noble picked it up as one of their book clubs. That's so exciting. Yeah. So the Discover pick, and I think that was, yeah, that kind of changed everything for yeah. it. You know, it's one of those things for a debut novel that, you know, mm-hmm. I am, I am no name recognition, nobody from nowhere. And all of a sudden, there was a table with my book on it in every Barnes and Noble in the country. So I mean, it's an amazing, this is such a good cover. This it's is so like, beautiful. okay. I actually um have, have it tattooed on myself. <laughs> you can't really see that. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. I was going to get a whale. And then my friend who did the tattoo and I were going back and forth. And finally I was like, let's just do the book. <laughs> that's so, so cool. That's, that is so metal. That is so cool. Thank you. I, I don't know that I've ever been metal in my life, so I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, I was teasing my kids that tattoos aren't cool anymore because I got one. So. That's one way, definitely. I am deathly afraid of needles, so I thought I was never going to get a tattoo. And I I didn't tell my parents I was going to get it because I thought, yeah, I only told like my husband and that was it because right, right. I was thought I was probably going to wimp out. And then I walked in and they're like, what's wrong with your arm? And I was like, um got a tattoo <laughs> they yeah. freaked out it was like not mad or anything but they were like are you a pawn person yeah <laughs> but book's kind of a big deal it seemed like a good reason <laughs> oh definitely that design I I should make sure I know the name of my designer for the cover it says right there in the book doesn't it uh, let's Sarah Wood? yeah Sarah Wood okay yeah she's <laughs> I mean she's designed so many amazing covers I was thrilled when they said that she was working on this one and it just it's gorgeous yeah do you have any input? I'm always so curious to know, like when it comes to like the design of, you know, your brainchild, like do you ever yeah. have any insight into that? 
So I did. I don't know how common that is. I think um, Norton being the type of publisher they are, where they do just a few novels at a time, and it is very, very hands-on and caring. Um, I think that most Norton authors probably get some say. And then um, my agent actually worked it into my contract that I would get at least like veto power. Um, but I loved all the designs they sent me, though that one stood out. Um, the one yeah. thing that I added was I asked them to put the whale on it. There wasn't a whale on the original design. And I think like even in my like wish list, I was like, I trust you. Do anything you want. Just make sure yeah. there's a whale. So the whale really makes it. I mean, I feel like that's maybe one of the whole points, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It I I'm glad that you think so. I think so too. But it still I yeah, it was a beautiful cover and then the whale just like made it perfect. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It was I was nervous about that because I'd heard horror stories about like you just yeah. see your cover and you say thank you and that's all you get <laughs> but that was definitely not the case we love to see it yeah it definitely captivated me I mean like I really try and not be the like judge the person by the cover <laughs> or judge the book <laughs> but I I was like oh that looks like it's gonna be good and then selfishly I was like mm, well I want to read it so what if we read it for book club <laughs> perfect my first question and a, a question a lot of us had while we were reading it is um, research-based. We are so fascinated by the research that went into this, especially because, you know, it is within the world of Moby Dick, um, which is, I think, a book everybody probably read in high school. Um, and how did that idea come to be? What research did you end up doing to get to this final destination? So I did not read Moby Dick in high school. I did not read Moby Dick till I was about 35. <laughs> um, and in reading it, had this moment where I went, oh, I see a story here. Um, because I was really so drawn to that character of, of Mrs. Hussey, the innkeeper, who yells and does silly things and gives chowder to Ishmael and Queequeg. And it initially started as a short story, and it was very much kind of embedded in the world of Moby Dick. But even that took some research because I, so I am from rural Idaho. I've lived here my whole life. I am an inland person. I didn't, I think I saw that, I saw the San Francisco Bay when I was 14, but I didn't see like the open ocean till I was an adult. And then all of a sudden here I was writing this story set in Nantucket, which seemed like a foreign country in some ways. Um, so the, the research, all of it was really fun. I love doing research. There were times where I think I would do research instead of writing. Um, but for, uh, for Nantucket, I did get the chance to go there while I was writing, but it was really late in the process um, because of COVID. I was I had a grant initially I was supposed to go in uh, April 2020, but I didn't. But I ended up um, interviewing people who had lived on the island for a long time and asking a lot of very strange questions like, what does whale oil smell like? And you know, what does everyone get wrong about Nantucket that I should definitely not get wrong and things like that. Um, and then you know, reading books on all sorts of things. Uh, I live in the same town where the University of Idaho is, and I worked there for a long time so I can use the library. Mm -hmm. And I got interlibrary loan books that were just utterly strange. I, I kept wondering what my librarians thought of me because of these books <laughs> I came in to get. Um, one, because uh, I really wanted to to get Queequeg's tattoos correct. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up getting a, a like, 1920s German art book that was like a very detailed images of Marquesan tattoos <laughs> and oh. it went to the wrong office and so I got oh, this no. phone call that's like we have a book for you 
it's in German. <laughs> we don't know what it is. And then, you know, just talking to a lot of people, my my first job out of college, I was a journalist. And then I've worked as a science writer for a long time. And so it is kind of in my nature to ask a million questions, um, both of books and humans. And so, you know, for um, the section in Brazil, I did a lot of reading. I read books from the era. I read books about the era. Um, I spent a lot of time for all the different sections on Google Maps, but especially for that part in Brazil, like um, I, I don't name the area that it's in, but in a similar area, there are there's like someone who took 100 photos of this beautiful 1870s church um, that you can basically virtually tour. And so I did things like that. And then found out that randomly there is uh, a professor who specializes in late 19th century Brazil, like who literally lives a few blocks from me. So oh I went gosh. to him and asked him the random questions, like what would they eat for breakfast? What would yeah. they sell? Things like that. So yeah, all of the research was just a delight. And it was also very inform like informative for me. I had not written historical fiction before. Mm -hmm. I decided to write this novel, um, <laughs> realizing like what the limits of it were. And when I needed to say, you know what, it's fine that I don't know this. I I can build a believable world and then do some guesswork in between. Definitely. I'm, that was one of our biggest like pulls for a lot of us was how atmospheric it felt. And we all really, it you know, we could smell the chowder. Like that was so visceral, you know, like hearing her speaking to you know all of her guests and asking you know what kind and then a lot of us really connected with being in Brazil and like that sort of dry feeling of just constant heat you know and just they all seemed so tired and weary we really really loved the atmosphere and we felt that brought a lot to the reading experience was there any location that kind of spoke to you the most while you were writing that you kind of were surprised by as it you know, evolved. I was surprised by Nantucket when I finally got to go there. It it was a really different place, like ecologically and culturally than anywhere I'd ever been before. I'd been to Boston once, but not really to to the like seaside very much. And I, I think I was just surprised on how different it was. And in, in my head, I was like, well, it can't be, you know, it can't be that different from like the Oregon coast or the Washington coast, but it is. Yeah. Um, And it has a different you know, I, I had written most of that, but I changed a lot of those atmospheric details because um, I was still there. It was still a lot of things were shut down from COVID. So I just spent like five days just wandering the island anywhere I could walk to um, and looking for those things that felt distinctive and surprising and different to me that I knew would help readers make it a real place. And I wish I could have gone to Brazil. I would I now like that is on my list of destinations. Um, but oddly, uh, when I was writing that a lot of that section, um, I had, uh, I was on a program through the university I work for in Italy, and uh, it was during the uh, massive heat wave in 2019, so it was about 115 yep. degrees every day, yep. and my poor little inlander soul was not handling it well, because it was humid, which I had never really experienced before, and so a lot of those details are actually drawn from, like, <laughs> oh, I have five weeks with no air conditioning. And my kids were with me and they were really small at the time. And they would like the scene where Mara and Otavi are saying, you know, we're melting, we're melting. That was what my kids did every day. So yeah. was pulling from that. That's hilarious. I think we all have had those moments as children where we're like, if I, if I sweat anymore, I will die. You know, like that, like <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable, but I can't figure out exactly how to explain it. Like it's life or death. We really also enjoyed how we got really deep even though some of the women you know we weren't with as long like 
Rachel, we didn't get to spend as much time with, obviously. When you were writing, did you kind of write it linear? Like, did you have this idea of how these women and their stories, you know, this, these generations connected? Or did you kind of go back and forth as you were writing their stories? I do tend to be a really linear writer. I am a drafter and then an editor. Um, So I did write them mostly in order, though, um, as I kind of got into understanding it as a novel and not just like a really long short story. Mm -hmm. um, I had documents where I would leave notes for myself about what was coming, but like wouldn't let myself think about it yet, because then I was more immersed in the character and the world that I was writing at the time. Um, so yeah, I had initially, initially written it as a short story that pretty much begins and began and ended where Evangeline's story begins and ends in the novel with a lot of changes in between eventually. Um, and then wrote through Rachel and then, yeah, as I kind of started getting a, a, an idea of where I wanted the book to go as a whole and how I wanted it to fold back on itself and Mm -hmm. how some of these characters I would revisit at different points in their life, um, I started kind of looking at okay what what else do I need to know how do I need to think about this how do I need to pay attention to it but a lot of that happened in editing um I I keep saying like I learned how to write a novel by writing a novel I had I have (laughs) never done like I think I did like a very short national novel writing month when I was like 22 but that that did not (laughs) um this was really the first honest to goodness novel I'd ever written and um one of the most challenging challenging things about it was that kind of making sure I wasn't just really focused on the piece I was working on, but thinking about how it would fit into the whole throughout all of that. So, and then um, the original draft had five narrators instead of four. And the last two were completely different than Annie. I deleted them entirely after a nice long period of getting rejections. And I ended up actually really loving writing Annie. And that was a really important part to me because I, I knew that I couldn't write a novel that would feel true to me if some of it wasn't in Idaho, mm-hmm. um, just because that that is my life experience. And that is, you know, I forget that it's kind of weird to be from here <laughs> um, and that I live in a place that to, you know, to folks who've never been here before might feel like it feels to Annie when she gets here, which is like, oh my gosh, why, why are we here? Why would you ever, ever come to this place? And I wanted to, I wanted to kind of explore that idea of both like, the love I have for the landscape here and the people here in the town I live in and the community I'm part of, but mm-hmm. also, you know, understanding that it is its own strange little part of the world and how might that look from the outside. Do you know if people from your community have read the book? Like, do they feel like it's very accurate to? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of people have. It's been, it's a small town and my like friends joke that I'm a celebrity now because we can't go anywhere without people talking to me. You are. Is, you are really a celebrity. <laughs> uh, like I go to, we have a wonderful little independent bookstore here and I go in and every time I go in, someone's like, oh, can you sign my book? And it's always someone I know. And so yeah. I'm like, um, yes, yeah, I, I can. That's fine. But yeah, it's, it, it is really cool. It's one of the best reactions I've gotten has been from friends who came here from other places, which I, I didn't, I was born here. I lived in an even smaller town when I was a teenager and then moved back. But I have a really dear friend who came here initially as an international student from Delhi, India, and wow. talks about the drive through the prairie from the yeah. airport to to town and worrying that maybe she was being taken somewhere to be killed. And I've had a few other friends who say, no, this is exactly what it felt like to yeah. to, to drive across the hills into this place, even though, I, you know, honestly, you go through about the same amount of nowhere as you would have in 1900 to get here. I really loved, I thought it was very special that we got to see 
that from Annie's perspective, kind of this watching, you know, her mom and her aunt kind of settle down for the first time yeah. um, in a place that she never would have expected, you know, to ever be in her life. And of course, you know, it then goes full circle and we end up back in Nantucket. Speaking of the women and just how incredible they are in this book, um, your magic system with with their sort of, I don't know if I want to call it powers or, you know, like exactly kind of what's going on there, but was that, did you always have this idea of magical realism when you were, when you were writing? Did you always want to involve that? Yes, absolutely. What is the first line has always been the first line. Um, though originally it contained a couple of words that made it really clear that she was magic <laughs> and I ended up <laughs> deleting those, but yeah, I, uh, I'm, really an avid reader of sci-fi and fantasy and I like books that are weird and I like writers who you know kind of play with the boundaries of reality in a lot of different ways and that was another thing that like I couldn't I couldn't imagine writing something that felt true to myself that wasn't a little weird in some way um and so I introduced that magic and that took a long time to develop too like I think one of the last things I did in like doing my big edits with my editor was I wrote like this massive document with all the rules for magic which I in retrospect should have done like at the beginning but (laughs) I learned that along the way Uh, but by then I felt like I had a I had a philosophical understanding of like why I wanted it there um and it's interesting that you said you weren't sure whether to call it powers um because that was the thing that was important to me that the different characters understand it differently in themselves Mm -hmm. um whether they see it you know with with Annie I felt like it was really important that she hits the point where it feels like it's part of her own body right as a sense it's part of who she is and she's not resisting it and she's not afraid of it She's just letting it be. And I feel like that that is something that, you know, outside of magical abilities is is very real to so many of us in so many ways, the way that we embrace or don't embrace the unusual and surprising things about ourselves. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. One of the questions that we we have, because we got maybe a little too deep into it, but it kind of seems like it's like all of the women have the same sort of power, but they are manifesting it depending on their own upbringing or, you know, however it speaks to them. Could you kind of touch a little bit on it and explain some more about like how these manifested within these women or, you know, how you kind of chose? Because I I found it so captivating that Evangeline uses it and she never really, she never really explains exactly what she's doing. She just kind of says that she's manipulating people, but not in a way that she says that she's manipulating them. But then Rachel sees it as a curse. And I always thought that that was like a really cool sort of, you know, counterbalance between the two of them. But when you were when you were working with these ladies, how did you kind of tweak, you know, how how they utilize it? Yeah. Um, so I definitely wanted it from the beginning when I, when I started writing it with like, okay, we have another character here, um, as kind of a, a mutation, which, which they would never consider it, but thinking of it as part of their bodies and part of who they are, that it, it is passed from mother to daughter, but things change along the way the same way. And I think there's one point where, you know, Annie reflects on how she can see herself in her mother, but also can't see herself in her mother and those same differences, um, and I did really, you know, and my long, weird, nobody has ever seen it but me rules for magic document does <laughs> talk about how a lot of what changes mother to daughter is rooted in some of the struggles that the mother has or the things she wishes that she had or that she wishes she could do. Um, you know, Evangeline really worries that she's not strong enough. And yeah. then her daughter is so strong that she's scared of her own self. And I've 
I hope that the readers who do get really into that, which, you know, not every reader does, I would say that there are things they can all do that they don't realize they're doing that aren't overt in the mm-hmm. text, but are there somewhere. Um, they all definitely, uh, I think you see it at the moment of Rachel's death, can do far more than they realize they can actually do. Yeah, I think we we are definitely the readers that got a little too into it. Like to the I love point, that. That's yeah, we're, to the point where we were like, okay, well, like if so, we were like, if this happened and this happened, like is this connect? Like we, it might have been <laughs> really nerdy. Um, <laughs> that's great. I'm really nerdy. Yeah. I love really nerdy readers. We were um, like, I'll tell you also that there are at least six other magical characters in the book, at least six, probably a lot more than that. Yes. Okay. This was my next question because we also were like, we were trying to categorize like, okay, who's magical and who isn't (laughs) our favorite, their ward when they're in Idaho. Mrs. Astor. Yes. Okay. We were obsessed with her and like her whole, like just vibe really where she was like, I am a Mrs. But like, have you ever seen a man? Like, have you ever seen my (laughs) sister? No, you haven't. Like, (laughs) she is she magical I I would say yes most okay um like if the the hint in there is when Annie tries to read where she's come from and can't yes yes and she was the one character who survived the massive cut of 30,000 words at one point where I I brought her over because I I couldn't let her go she was she was too fascinating. And I, I, there are decisions I've never made about Mrs. Astor that I, mm-hmm. I would hope that readers make for themselves about who she actually is and where she came from. There's a lot of possibilities. Oh, definitely. She's a force to be reckoned with. We really, like, every time she was on the page, we couldn't stop talking about her. Oh, like, I love it. We were saying, like, we would read a prequel of, like, just Mrs. Astor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, maybe give me, like, 20 years before I ever come back to this world again. But maybe you'll get a prequel <laughs> of just Mrs. Astor. I could do. She she would be the one to write about, for sure. Definitely. Was there, I mean, so, obviously, you, you know, had to cut a lot. You, I'm sure, added things during your research that you weren't anticipating initially, you know, when you were brainstorming. But was there any one character that you ended up either utilizing way more than you anticipated or was there like a character that you kind of, that kind of like spoke to you the most while you were in this whole process? So I, I've been asked variations on this question a lot. It's hard to answer every time. Like in uh-huh. some ways I'm very attached to Annie because she, she was a late edition, but she, mm-hmm. she sounds the most like me. Like when I have read passages of it aloud, which I'm not a fan of doing, mm-hmm. she's the only one that doesn't feel completely bizarre for me to read out loud because mm-hmm. the others don't sound like me or talk like me or move their hands like me or anything like this yeah. so <laughs> it just feels really artificial when I have to try to be them but I, I really even though she is in the novel most briefly Rachel took me a lot of work to write mm-hmm. um it took me a lot of time to to get her tuned where I wanted her tuned and it's interesting because I you know I have heard from a lot of readers they don't like her at all Um, mostly or they don't understand why she does the things she does which is great because she does things that don't make sense um but part of why I was so attached to her is that acknowledging that a lot of her weaknesses are a lot of mine and a lot of her fears are a lot of mine that you know feeling of wanting there to be a really clear narrative to the world and there just isn't one and so you make decisions and then backfill (laughs) like to make yourself feel like you're making sense um and I really did. I really loved writing her. And actually, you know, because I, I did write those sections. Ultimately, the early drafts were four years before I was doing my final edits, like going back to her and realizing that I had like this enormous wall of compassion for her. And 
you know, couldn't make her like a perfect person. I had to let her do all like literally drown, but could could do it in a way that felt really true to who she was and why she did the things she did and and hopefully make her you know a character that some readers are going to get really mad at but other readers see something familiar in definitely yeah I I mean can we talk about the focus on motherhood in this book Mm -hmm. and what it means to be a mother especially the mother of a daughter you know as you are watching them go their own way I mean there's so much focus for the women on finding the man in their life when in reality it's it's truly the one woman the women that is there for them was that kind of fun to play around that idea of like motherhood for each character or you know I mean Annie obviously is a brilliantly written you know child I think we've all felt that way when we're you know 16 and think that we're adults but (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) was that I mean I'm sure that was always kind of the focus was you know motherhood yeah, um, it, it was definitely. So um, part of it was, you know, I'm I'm really close with my mom. She actually, we're going to the movies right after this. She's an incredible person. She's been an educator for 30 years, um, but we're really different personalities. And when I was a teenager, I, I didn't fight with her, but I just also wasn't particularly close with her because I was just such a different person. Um, but she and my dad moved down a few blocks away from me when my kids were little and like, I got to build this new type of relationship with my mom, especially during COVID where like for a while she was the only person I hung out with. Um, yeah. And we, we went to cemeteries together cause we're kind of weird. Like, and, but realizing <laughs> all the ways that like, Oh, understanding my mom in this new way. Yeah. Is helping me understand myself in a new way. And I think like her, you know, it worked both directions for sure, for sure. And a lot of that was happening while I was, while I was writing and editing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously experience of motherhood for myself. So I, I don't have daughters, I have sons, mm-hmm. but um, they were in kindergarten and third grade when I started writing and they are 15 and 12 now. So it, they have grown up with this book oh. and, you know, even going back and doing some of the editing and writing with Annie, you know, was when my older son was 13 and, you know, doing some close observation of 13 year old <laughs> in the wild. Um, but, you know, gender aside, I feel like, you know, every, every child is such a unique and strange being. And I feel like a lot of my experience of motherhood, like I, I was very young. I was 23 when my older son was born. And I definitely had the attitude for a while that like, oh, I'm not like the other moms. Like, you know, I'm, I, I have a little distance here. I, I work, I do these things. Like I'm, I don't know what I'm doing, but I embrace that because I'm a kid. But then, you know, as, as I, as we both got older realizing like, you know, I, I can't separate myself from that part of my identity. I'm never going to be able to. And it's wonderful and terrifying. And, uh, you know, I had a friend once, you know, I, I think she gets a little bit of credit for this book because she said, why don't you write something about how like bizarre it is to be a mother? And it, cause, cause it is. And I think I, it was important to me to write something that had really complicated relationships between mothers and children and really difficult relationships between mothers and children, because those things are real. But then also, you know, that, that intensity of both physically and emotionally, the relationship between a parent and child, a lot of the scenes with Rachel and um and with Mara when she's a baby were ones that were like I had to take breaks after writing them because it was so just such visceral memories um you know I it doesn't say it directly but Mara's a colicky baby and my younger son was a colicky baby and he just he was just an unhappy 
person when he was little yeah. uh, and that but that feeling you know the hours of pacing and the just like needing to set him down and go to the other room and freak out and like the conflict of feeling like am I awful because I'm having that experience but then talking to other parents and being like no all of us are freaking out and trying to learn how to do this while we're doing it and yeah. you have one kid and you think you know what works and you have another and it doesn't work at all and then they change ages and there's suddenly different people and you know I think for, for parents, I hope they see a lot of that reality in the mm-hmm. different parts of this book, but then also for people who are not parents or never intend to be parents, but have relationships in their lives that are complicated and meaningful at the same time, mm-hmm. um, that they, they see things to reflect on there. I didn't let my mom read it until it was out as, as an arc, but I gave her my arc first and, and like, she read it in a day and like called me and yeah. there was everyone cried. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was really cool. And both my grandmothers are still alive. Uh, and, and one, um, gives some challenges isn't able to read it. I'm hoping she'll be able to listen to the audiobook when it comes out. Oh, cool. Um, but my other grandma, I was very surprised she read it. This is not, I mean, she reads mostly like romance novels with Amish characters in them. Uh, oh. but she read it without telling me she was going to, and then like called me and told me how much it meant to her. And that was also just mind-blowingly cool <laughs> so um because I, I mean that generational aspect was really important to me too I uh I lived like I didn't have to cross streets I just had to cross a horse pasture to get to my grandma's house and to um both my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother were alive until I was in middle school and I used to go play cards with them and so you know especially at the end mm-hmm. where we get that crossing of generations that was really important to me to explore that really like I I have to say, like, I was so blown away by that ending, maybe because I'm so bad at math. I was so, so surprised. And yet so like, it felt so right, like when she goes back, you know, and and finds, you know, that she's there's they're waiting for her. I would say like majority of people at book club really liked Mara, and they really liked Evangeline. I say like, I personally really liked Rachel, like I thank you (laughs) really connected, I think, like, her just idea of like not wanting to form any relationships after watching like her relationship with her mom like I I really liked Rachel but her decision when she like cuts ties completely like that was to me the most the saddest thing in in the book like just that decision that she made so like getting to see you know Annie go back with Evangeline and her to kind of be like yeah no I I didn't forget, like, I remembered, you know, like, that was really, really special to, to watch that. And then I did have to do the math to be like, (laughs) how old? I have a spreadsheet, a very elaborate (laughs) spreadsheet that helped with all of that. That's amazing. We were wondering if with the boat charts and everything, when you chose Brazil for Mm. story, was that was that in any way tied to like how much of Moby Dick did you want to bring into the book, like lo- both location wise and, you know, with characters and everything like that? Was that specifically tied to kind of the lore of, of Moby Dick? That So Brazil, not exactly. Um, but okay. what um, I did, I, I limited Moby Dick to those early chapters, like almost every yeah. character in those early chapters is a character in some who are just mentioned like one line but the one thing I did use throughout the book is on the route that they follow Ishmael a lot of those places are places that were mentioned in Mm -hmm. Moby Dick but um, Brazil I don't think is 
but uh he's there is chapters where he where in in Moby Dick where Ishmael talks or someone whoever the narrator is at that point talks about having been in Lima Peru with his old buddy and so I I got out my globe and I went and I looked at a couple of maps and I went okay if we sail around here like where might you accidentally have a shipwreck and I kind of almost arbitrarily picked that part of Brazil because it sticks out but uh you know, some of it is the the lore in my head about why those sailors went to that place. Um, mm-hmm. But really, once I started doing the the research on that area, and and when I because I I had a idea of nuns, but when I was doing my background reading before I started writing, um, learned about Recolamentos and this this these hopefully not always, but in an ideal world, safe places for women and girls who had nowhere else to go. Yeah. I went, oh, that's it. Because I, I knew that I wanted to, for one, I needed to make it a very tight and isolated community because of the limits of what I could do and know research-wise yeah. um, to kind of fairly capture that there. Um, but I also wanted it to be a really meaningful community of women and girls. Um, and then when learning that that history existed in Brazil, along with you know, that there were these, I mean, there are these tiny, tiny little villages of people um, kind of scattered throughout that northern part of Brazil. Mm -hmm. Uh, It kind of just cemented like, yes, this is where I want to be. But yeah, it's rooted mostly in, okay, where, how would we get to (laughs) Peru in this point? That's great. One of my things that I always really love to ask is, um, was there anything that you were reading while you were writing that like really inspired you? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I read, I read a ton. I still not as like, I'm impressed by some of these people on the internet and how much they read, but I, I, I pretty much have read at least a book a week, my whole life. And the one that popped into my head initially is Jess Walters, the cold millions. So Jess is from Spokane, which is about two hours North of here. He has been one of my favorite writers for a million years. Um, and one of the things that really influenced me is I like how he writes endings, his novel, beautiful, uh, beautiful ruins. The Beautiful Ruins, I think it's just Beautiful Ruins, mm-hmm. has one of my favorite endings of any book ever because it kind of just explodes into the universe and he pulls all of these things in and it's just like, oh, like it it ends with something really big and real. And I feel like for a while, especially like around the time I was in college 15, 20 years ago, there was like this trend of like novels that just ended. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to do that. And so really, you know, kind of studying how Jess did that ending and and looking at, okay, how do I write something that feels like big and real and powerful, but like it's not packaged up tidy and all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other nod there is, so I read The Cold Millions while I was, I think more towards when I was editing. It's not that old of a book. But when, when uh, Annie is on the train and they go through Spokane, as you would have to get to Moscow in that point uh, in time, um, there's a little nod to that book in it. There's a, a character that she looks out the train window and sees, and that's like my little private, like, I oh. love just <laughs> moment. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. I think um, Catherine Arden's The Bear in the Nightingale series I read while I was writing this, N.K. Jemison's Inheritance Trilogy, and uh, the the rock one, the stone one, that I should know what it's called, and I can't remember. I read... While I was writing this, I read a bunch of books by Naomi Novik, who I really love. Yeah. I um, adore Kelly Link's short stories. And I read, well, White Cat, Black Dog wasn't out yet, but she has another story collection that I'm not remembering the name of. But like her story, The Fairy Handbag, is like one of those stories that lives inside my head and that I reread all the time. And that 
she does some really fantastic things with like generational stories in it that really influenced um, this book in a lot of ways. And I actually, I got to be on like a virtual panel with her and had to like restrain myself from fan. Oh like, She's so ridiculously kind. And like what I, I'm super excited for her book that comes out next week too. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. I'll have yeah, to read lots, lots of great writers out there. Um, and I probably read a lot more, but those are the ones that jump, jump in my head. Amazing. Um, we do have a question here. Yeah. Okay. Um, you talked some about your research and I was wondering if in developing the magical realism aspect of the story you did any research specifically about memory and the sociology of remembering or forgetting and how that contributed um so some of that oddly was really rooted in work I had done a long time ago um like I said I was I was a journalist right out of school and a journalist while I was a while I was a student um knowing wisely that most people don't make money off novels and that I would probably have to have a day job. And I got really fascinated with that like malleability of memory as a journalist because I still had this like happy little feeling inside that like, oh, most people try really hard to tell the truth all the time. And most people, like if you're paying attention, you remember what happens and how very, very quickly like that was all knocked out of me. I, I live in a, an exceptionally safe place, but I, I covered two murder trials my first summer out of college. And seeing again and again and again these people get up on the stand and say with their whole hearts what they believed happened and knowing that like it wasn't what the person before them said they believed happened um it really developed some of my interest there um and then I did a lot of research um as an undergraduate student on a um arson fire that had happened here in the 1950s and I interviewed a bunch of people who were there when it you know it had did various things when it happened and that was also fascinating it was because I would talk to these people it had been 50 years mm -hmm. and they would say with absolute confidence here's what happened and I would say well but like I've been reading these newspaper articles I I've been looking at these things you know one the um, the arsonist uh was released from prison after only 11 years, even though he killed three people. And I would have people say, you know, he's in prison to this day and we made sure of that. And I'd have to say, actually he was released in 1967 and then he died in California in 1980. Like, um, so, uh, and I did a lot of research on, I did a lot of learning about memory and remembering and forgetting. And, you know, I, I think memory is such an important thing in so many stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and it, is I think it's even more interesting when we realize that all of it is to some extent an artif artifice of our brains. And as a, you know, as a person who loves stories, realizing that like, it's like biologically preserving that we don't remember everything and that our memories are not perfect and that we make things make sense in ways that perhaps are not real. Um, but it's also part of how, how humans survive. I, I mean, we had mentioned this briefly, but you said you're talking about your next you are working on something I am working on something um I wish I was working on it a little more than I am but I am working on it um I I have been asked several times and I am not writing a sequel or prequel or anything with this I I loved working in this world but I'm ready to be done with it for a little while um but yeah I'm not saying too much about the project I'm working on right now other than that it briefly involves um, Idaho country music and aliens, <laughs> and, or at least the idea of aliens. Yeah. I decided to lean a little harder into my own weirdness uh, for this one and into um, some more of the questions of 
the my home and the region I grew up in and it's very very complicated and sometimes very dark nature and so that, that's what I'm working on right now it does still involve some historical settings so it's set in the 70s the 90s or late 60s early 70s late mm-hmm. 90s um and I haven't quite decided but very near future um and then also involves a lot of the same kind of questions of of generations and siblinghood a little bit and then um I didn't intend to but as I started writing it I gave my main character a teenage son and that that became really important really fast because so much of my world right now is the two teenagers down the hall so yeah yeah that's so cool well thank you so much for meeting with us this is bad uh, really it was really a delight <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We will have all of your like social media and things linked in our show notes for people cool, to be able you. to find you and explore all of your work. But thank you for spending your time with us this evening. Enjoy your movie with your mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have fun. Um, but amazing. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. Honestly, this has been oh, really, really spectacular. Thank you. This was a treat. <laughs> Y'all have a good night. Thank you. You too. In the meantime... I hope you're reading something good. If you're reading something shitty, I can't wait to hear about it. Support the St. Martin's Press boycott. And from one book ho to another, thanks for being here. And we'll talk to you next week.